The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now, joining us for the week trending, a look at the stories making the headlines of the week, we're joined by Ben Finnegan, who, of course, you know from the 5 of 5 and 6 of 6, and Laura Byrne, assistant news editor with The Journal, who used to be our newsreader here on The Last Word oh, about a decade ago now at this stage. Thank you both very much for joining us. Can I start, Ben, by suggesting that if we do talk about all of the protests that have been taking place against immigration this week, that we are not saying that everybody involved in them, by any means, are members of the far right or are racists. But the concern is that there are elements manipulating what might be genuine concerns and turning them into something quite ugly. And that is the concern that has been put across by Drew Harris and the government repeatedly, that there seems to be some sort of element within these protests that... I don't know, are they orchestrating or in the shadows kind of pulling strings and leading people to certain areas that can be argued as being far right ideology? There's, you know, countless protests now over the past couple of weeks and people, their concerns are by and large the same. And you kind of generally hear the same concerns being voiced over and over again the lack of consultation, this idea of um, unvetted men coming in keeps coming up and they seem to be ideology that is being put forward by elements of the far right. So it could be argued that some people who are attending those protests with legitimate concerns are also being influenced into the far right ideology which is orchestrating them. And Laura Burnett has struck me that all of these complaints about allegedly dangerous men coming in from other countries, as if we have no dangerous men of our own in Ireland to start with. Yeah, I I mean, the danger, stranger danger, danger to your children trope is such an old school tactic of the far right uh, that it's, you know, it's, it's, there are so many red flags. And as Ben said, not everyone who's coming out on the streets and every town or sector that we've, we've seen these uh, protests in is, is in a far right bracket, but there are certainly far right actors appearing in many of the same places and stirring up a lot of the very difficult language around these protests and we've got to a stage where there were just little pockets of perhaps you know it started maybe with East Wall then Drimna and then Ballymun and now really we're looking at something that looks like a contagion and if uh, let's say the media and the government doesn't get a handle on it it could get to a very serious stage where someone perhaps an innocent person, I mean, let's be honest, they're not showing up at Leinster House, they're showing up where many refugee families are being held, that somebody could get really seriously hurt here. So it is interesting to see that the Gardaí kind of maybe changed tactics a little bit earlier in the week with what happened uh, in around Finglas and that. And is enough concern been given, do you think, to those who might be the subject of these particular protests? Because last night on Inger Street around the corner when I was leaving, the protest hadn't broken up fully, though the traffic was moving at that stage, but there were still protesters around. I did see Gardy removing an individual, taking him away in a paddy wagon. Uh, but I ended up talking briefly to the woman beside me at the bus stop, who was a foreign woman, who was very upset by what she was observing. 
and quite fearful also of sort of speaking up loudly in case she would be targeted because she obviously was foreign. Well, we were just even saying today, I mean, all of the conversations, let's say, on broadcasting and Irish media has rightly so been about this. But if you're a person who is non-Irish and let's be honest, non-white Irish, and you're listening to all of this conversation, just how, you know, how traumatised do you feel? I mean, not only you don't have to be a refugee being put up in these places to feel intimidated. There are many uh, people who've moved to Ireland who consider themselves Irish people, but are perhaps not born in Ireland, who have been saying very, very carefully lately that they are not feeling safe in this country. There have been circul- you know, video circulating of people being intimidated by bad actors in the last week or two. It's a very dangerous atmosphere out there at the moment. And, you know, again, this all comes down to nobody's showing up at Leinster House. You can talk about government policy and all of immigration policy issues. And there are so many issues for, for people to be upset about at the moment. But do it. We're a democracy. Go up to the go up to Leinster House and make your views be known. This is entirely about timid intimidation of very vulnerable people a lot of the time. I do believe that a lot of people's concerns do is directed towards government policy or lack thereof policy. But certain elements of the media could be focusing instead of on the policy and on what decisions ministers are making are instead focusing on the actions and people who are at the centre of this, who are fleeing war, fleeing parts of the world and coming to Ireland seeking refuge, which they have a right to do. And a lot of the issues stem from a lack of preparation from the government. We've known about this crisis for the last year, nearly, since February last year. And we're still talking about, I think we're on the the third or fourth time now where the government is like, we don't have any beds. Although it can also be said, Ben, that we have accommodated an enormous number in a short period of time. Oh, totally. Totally, I know. But we're like even this morning, Minister Roderick O'Gorman, like how many times has he put out a plea to government departments for uh, accommodation or suitable accommodation? And how many times has he repeatedly done it? And it doesn't seem to be getting the, the, the desired response. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Minister Roderick O'Gorman. In fairness, there, ha- there is an acknowledgement, I think, in government circles that his brief is entirely too wide. Mm. I heard him interviewed on the radio during the week and he was asked about perhaps three or four top stories and they were all part of his brief. And, you know, it's, he's overwhelmed. And we interviewed Nick Henderson of the Irish Refugee Council during the week for our Explainer podcast about the system and how it works. Number one, he said, first of all, it's not a very easy thing to come to Ireland and come through from a place and declare, you know, seek asylum. You don't just get handed an Irish passport and off you go. It's a very complex system. But one thing he did notice that it seemed as if Roderick O'Gorman's uh, Roger Gorman's department are not getting the support from other departments. So that letter that appeared in the last 24 hours is very interesting. Like that, there, there has to be better mobili- mobilisation from government. There's a listener here, Shane, uh, who gives his address, which I won't read, but he says, my wife is Filipino, I'm Irish. I'm terrified of her getting caught up in a protest in town, scared of her being verbally or racially abused based on her olive skin colour. There are so many Irish-born people now of different colour to those traditional Irish that we've all grown up with white people. This is an enormous amount of people who may have reason to be fearful. Mm, Totally. And it's not just uh, like people in the media are also targets for this and politicians are also targets for this. It's not just um, the uh, refugees or asylum seekers or immigrants or whatever you want to call them, expats who are at the centre of this. And I think a lot of this has been bred into... Uh, voids that have been left, again, through government policy or ministers answering questions. There is nothing wrong with saying to a question, I don't know the answer to that. 
In the pandemic, at the start of COVID, ministers were out daily. There was daily briefings. Everyone kind of knew what was going on. And if I'd asked ministers questions and they, on the record, would say, actually, I don't actually know the answer to that. I will get back to you on it. That's not happening now. If you ask a minister a question on policy about immigration or where these people are going to be housed or what do they think about the standards, they can often sidestep, which leaves a void because people can easily see that the question is not being answered. What about the issue of misinformation as well? Because there was an authoritative report last weekend by Kitty Holland in the Irish Times about something she had witnessed, a physical attack on a group of men in Ashtown in North Dublin, foreign men at an encampment where there are 15 tents. And what happened then is that certain malign actors decided to try and undermine her report, claiming that it didn't happen. And not only that, Matt, but Kitty Holland took some serious, uh, some serious um, heat for that. Online this, abuse. Online abuse, exactly. She took online abuse where, whereby, you know, where her colleagues had to come out and defend her. And when you think of it, Kitty Holland is a really well-respected reporter who went out on the scene to, to talk to people who were living in a difficult situation and they happened to witness this. And she was also accompanied by an award-winning photographer who I don't think got half the heat. But so a female reporter is out there trying to do her job. But a lot I think what happened there with Kitty Holland is really indicative of the lack of trust in mainstream, I hate that term, mainstream media that's out there and really... It Amongst a small a certain cohort, minority. Exactly. And really what we have to be very careful about in here is not really enough is being made about social media. Social media, if you talk about the contagion of far-right ideology, social media is like pouring petrol on top of that, you know, and Justine McCarthy had a great piece today about what we're looking at is like somebody, you know, throwing dynamite down and just lighting the match and you can see it spread. And I what what social media tends to do and what the far right really thrives with is this simple answer to difficult questions. You know, democracy is slow and it's laborious and it's tough and we're living in a very difficult time where there's a housing crisis and people are getting their gas bills and they're struggling to pay bills. So if you pick up your smartphone and you look at whatever it is, any platform that is doing really well at spreading this stuff and someone you know says, look at this guy. Yeah, they're right. It's somebody else's fault. It's this person who's living in direct provision or whatever it is. I I think we had a case this week, the Guardian had to clarify as well that in the case of an alleged sexual assault on the north side of Dublin... Which led to that Ashtown attack. Yeah, with that actually the person they're looking from is Irish. Yeah. Not a, foreign a, at all, despite Irish, the rumours that have been put around deliberately. An Irish white male. And these attacks on refugees and asylum seekers, the Ashtown case, I thought it was incredible that some of the men in that camp are EU nationals who have a right to be here and can live By and law. work here. Well, there, yeah, we like Irish people have a right to be abroad in other countries. Absolutely. And, and as here Irish says, people have done, Matt. We're well, here's a comment immigrants. I want yeah. to read. This listener says, it's, Hannah says, it's very hypocritical for people to be as discriminatory and racist as they are towards non-Irish white people, considering our ancestors were in the exact same position when they emigrated abroad. You'd think we as a society would have a bit more empathy for those who were victims of this kind of abuse. And Matt, what I've noticed is we've been watching a lot of this, uh, the, these protests, obviously, in the last couple of weeks, and the language is very nationalistic. And that's what you get with far-right ideology. Like, far-right isn't just some nice little name you give a group of people. If you carry, if you're part of a far right ideological movement, you are ultra nationalist. You're not about human rights. You're not about rights of education and all of that. And all of the language is very nationalistic. And really, when you think about it, that's exactly when you think about our own history. The idea that we should not 
at least understand what it's like to go into another an entire ecosystem with very little in your pocket and try and make a life for yourself. The irony of this as well is, and it leads into the whole historical, cultural aspect for Irish people. Why are these people coming here? Because we speak English. If we spoke Irish, they probably wouldn't be coming here because they wouldn't have an interest in coming here because it's a different language. Well, we're also in a really wealthy country, Ben, and it's really oh, hard. totally. You know, I suppose it is difficult for people. Like, I think one thing I really noticed that was great messaging came from the Irish um, Obser- Far Right Observatory. Neve Macdonald during the week made some great points. She said, you know, the worst thing you can do when it comes to battling this kind of in- misinformation is to sort of poo-poo the fears that, that like you said, like, that. you know, people standing around the corner may join a protest and not really know what they're getting involved with. And I think the last thing we should do is to sort of say, well, you're wrong and you're far right. That's that's kind of pointless. Which is why at the very outset I made a distinction that I don't believe the majority of people involved are far right, but it can be that other legitimate fears that they might have or complaints that they have about their living conditions or whatever get manipulated and turned into something that's quite nasty. And yeah, obnoxious. and being triggered by the language around abuse of children and, and stranger danger. Totally. I mean, we're entirely... You know, you can see how that happens. And Ben, you mentioned earlier, though, about the vacuum. I thought it was a really good point that you mentioned the COVID communication strategy. It is something that needs to be righted here, because if you think of, you know, Michal Martin, Leo Varadkar stomping down the steps every, what was it, every week, the three uh, main leaders lined up once a week to give a briefing. I mean, we need to get back to that level of communication, that level of openness. Every Saturday during the first lockdown, I went to the Department of Health as a reporter and there was an hour a uh, discussion with Simon Harris every week without fail. That is not happening with Roger Gorman or Minister Joe O'Brien. OK, we're going to have to take a break. We'll come back to discuss other issues in the week trending. One listener taking issue with the description of Ireland as a rich country. It's actually, I was talking off air uh, to a representative, Fergal O'Brien from IBEC earlier in the week, we're the 28th richest country in the world. Out of nearly 200 countries, we are the 28th richest the trajectory we're going, but in a few years we could be members of the G20 richest nations in the world. A lot of debt though. That's true, <laughs> as you told us in the five of five. Back with last war with Ben Finnegan and Laura Byrne in the week trending after this. The last word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Okay, we're continuing the week trending with uh, Laura Byrne from the journal.ie and also Ben Finnegan from our own newsroom here in Today FM. Of course, our news anchor on the 5 at 5 and 6 at 6. Okay, Laura, tell us about the idea of renaming Dublin streets because many of them uh, honour landlords, slave owners and aristocrats. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a nice story from the Dublin Enquirer, actually. Uh, so a proposal to name a new apartment complex uh, called Gardner Court there in Dublin 1, I think. Was off Gardner Street, It's off presumably. Gardner Street, yeah. A lot, there's a lot of gardens. I lived around that area years ago and there's a lot of Gardner buildings. So it's just an area that you'd know. It's up kind of near Mountjoy Square on the way from the from the river there. So uh, a proposal to name it was blocked um, at Dublin City Council because that area has links to Charles Gardner the Earl of Blessington. So you'd probably be aware of Blessington Street is up that direction. So he was, um, he it, that was his gardener estate back in the good old days of when we had to answer to other overlords, that sort of thing. So this is a, a bit of pushback from independent councillor Niall Ring saying that we should stop naming new streets after aristocratic landlords, which is a fair point. We've got uh, plenty of our own heroes to name streets after. Um, we've got the Rosie Hackett Bridge. What else? We've got Samuel Beckett Bridge. There's plenty we could pick from. So 
I mean, we've seen this across a lot but of yeah, the Western Yeah, could this world. be our version of tearing down statues, given that we got rid of Nelson's pillar, there aren't that many more left from our post-independence era, pre-independence era? Like, look, the average person on the street doesn't <coughs> have a clue who Lord or Duke Grafton or whatever they were called and Lord Henry and Lord Blessington, they don't know what they are. They just know the street. Like there's Sussex Street down in Dublin, Suffolk Street, Nassau Street. They're all named You go into Trinity College, you have the Berkeley Library and he was a slave owner as well. Look, nobody. You're no one if you were a slave owner back in the day. Exactly. I mean, and nobody is defending slavery. But no. I, I feel that, like, when Irish people name streets, though, we end up with, like, upteen O'Connell streets in the country. Every second street to be O'Connell Street. We're not uh, imaginative well, enough, and, is it? Yeah, any amount of main streets, a couple of Patrick's. And my favourite uh, Irish name street is in my hometown in Castlery. They built a road and they called it New Road. <laughs> would be the first <laughs> new road you came across <laughs> We're funny. I was down actually in Tralee a fortnight ago and I hope maybe Kerry listeners can actually tell me but there was all the roundabouts were named after what I presumed are Kerry footballers of the past Oh well you well, can't take that That would be a great idea Yeah well, I, this, like I, I think definitely it, there's a lot to be said for, I suppose, in, you know, owning your own city and, you know, commemorating your heritage. But I suppose what I thought was interesting, Green Party Councillor Janet Horner and I think Labour's Declan Mina were saying we should be trying to redress the balance a bit now and, and find some female heroes. So we're now looking at Bridget's uh, bank holiday this weekend. Katie so Taylor So that's a start. Avenue. Yeah, why not? <laughs> but <laughs> wouldn't that be a better name given... Yeah, maybe that. What's the name of the place they were talking about? Gardner Court. Gardner Court. Call it yeah. Katie Taylor Court. Yeah. Why not? I well, don't. Uh, yeah. I don't have a problem with it, but like, I don't think walking down uh, O'Connell Street, not O'Connell Street, Grafton Street, or Henry Street, Nassau Street, you're thinking of oh those those damn slave drivers. It's not coming to anyway, the fore. I wonder would the actual change of name actually stick if you try to that people will continue because where I grew up in Cork, the the nearest bridge to me is the Thomas Davis Bridge. And Thomas Davis is a very famous figure of Irish 1830s history. But everyone in the area still called it by its own name, the Wellington Bridge, named after the Duke of Wellington. And that was like... Well, after the change, in 50 years after the well, change. But I think there's name. a difference. You're right, Matt. Alex, there's a difference between changing the name of something and, and this. So, this Gardner Court isn't new. So, that's oh, great. So it's adding Let new names in, yeah, yeah, happy days. But, you know, to me, I'd rather see something changed for the right reasons. Like, the worst thing we could do is say, name the point depot after a brand or something like that. You know, I mean, like that's a whole <laughs> entirely new. road. Yeah, imagine just <laughs> oh. the horror. So, there's other things you could be worrying about in that naming zone. Listener says you have the John B. Keane Road in Listole. Okay. That's a good but one. There is some streets in Dublin, like Pierce Street. That's, I hope, named after uh, Pottery <laughs> Pierce. <laughs> I think it is, because isn't that where he grew I, up? I, ass- down that area, I assume so, unless we find some 1600s. And in fairness, O'Connell Street used to be Sackville Street. Yeah. Okay. Now and I did I did see a poster near, I live near the New Children's Hospital and there's a there's a local campaign to name it after oh my god who was it the famous nurse it's gone out of my head but I will find out and I'm all behind, I'm well I'm up for it and of course Bachelor's Walk named after the TV show <laughs> okay let's move on to something else Ireland playing Wales in Cardiff tomorrow but there's a certain song that will not be sung before the match a Tom Jones song Delilah. Yeah, the stadium, the Principality Stadium in Cardiff said it would no longer be performed by choirs after removing it from the halftime playlist way back in 2015. 
The song has caused controversy with lyrics depicting the murder of a woman by her jealous partner. I never knew that. I, I mean, didn't I've either. heard this song God knows how many like, times. I, I never for life Well, it's like Sweet Caroline. All you know is the one couple of seconds. I didn't listen to it un- properly on today and the lyrics are quite questionable. And like, I was never aware of its meaning. It's a catchy song. Nobody's saying that the song isn't a quality song if you want to look at that and Tom Jones as well was rejecting the criticism um, and the claims that it trivialised domestic violence. Um, Now I'm not one to speak on whether it entices or incites domestic violence but having a stadium full of 70,000 people chanting this song it's not a good look really. Yeah, I mean, well, I suppose if you think... What would they be singing? Bye, 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 Delilah is the bit that they'd know, the chorus. Well, this is, you'd have to ask a Welsh person, do they really know all the words to this song? I mean, all we know is, why, 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 Delilah? That's all I can think of. But if you think of fairy tale in New York and all the scandals around that over the years, that was a pretty obvious offensive words everyone had an issue with and probably rightly so. So, you know, that was... But I think Delilah, I don't know. And it's Tom Jones. I thought they just he could do no wrong, but apparently not. But I've seen people raise the point as well that, yeah, yeah, the, the song talks about domestic violence. Fine. But let's not forget about the alcohol which is drank at these games, which can cause people to... Have you ever been at a rugby match in Cardiff? Thankfully, no. Oh, I tell you, there's a lot Next of alcohol level. consumed. Well, yeah. but that's but that's kind of the point. That remember the during the the World Cup in England um, and the Euros, there was the like the "It's Coming Home" song, and they had a domestic violence campaign, which was "He's Coming Home." Oh, good God! Yeah. yeah. That's another day's work, I think, Ben. Okay, well, let's move to other things. Tell us about this attempt, Laura, to bring the dodo back from extinction. I know, honestly, have we learned nothing from the dinosaurs? <laughs> Jurassic Park has it taught us nothing. So, yeah, ge- genetic scientists are saying that they have possibly developed this technology that could, if they mapped the gen- the genome of the dodo, which, which is dead for how long? Disappeared since... Uh, 1700s. 1700s, thank you. And that the, the, the potential for them to resurrect it is there and that it could live happily in... Mauritius. Mauritius. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? I wouldn't mind living happily in Mauritius. Um I mean, in fairness, the the theory behind it is that, you know, we're looking at a, a mass dis- extinction in a lot of ways here and maybe the science will have a place uh, as we face into a climate issues. But there are uh, a lot, there is a bit of pushback from the science world saying that there are ethical issues. Like you they, know. they're looking at doing it as well with like the woolly mammoth, which I've seen, I've read about it recently that um, they'd use the DNA of the wo- woolly mammoth and it'd be uh, what, what's a, like a, a, an elephant would carry it for the gestation period. I think for the dodo, they're looking at a pigeon because it's the closest living relative. So a pigeon oh, would gestate the dodo. Can we not leave well enough alone? Like, what is wrong with it, human beings? We're just like messing the, with everything. It feels like the dodo was only like, all it did was get extinct. I, I, I'm not aware of anything that it did. Can we end the week trending on a high by talking about Australia legalising MDMA and magic mushrooms for, ma- for medical conditions? Yeah, well, after decades of demonisation, psychiatrists will be able to prescri- prescribe MDMA in Australia this year for some um, mental uh, illnesses. Um, the drugs will only be allowed used in a very limited way and remain otherwise prohibited. 
Presumably, it will be microdosing, and it's already a form of medication in the US and Canada. Yeah. And it's really interesting, actually. Uh, Trinity College had a really interesting study there. I think coming up in October with psilocybin, which is a form of what would be colloquially known as magic mushrooms, and its potential for treatment of uh, resistant um, treatment resistant depression. And there is really growing research there, and you know, very interesting stuff. And even this week, we're just talking about the idea of decriminalizing drugs in a citizens' assembly where other parts of the world have legalised them, are using it for good. It just shows, arguably, that we're way behind. Yeah, we have Dr. Ian Marder on that uh, this, this evening from Maynooth University saying, you know, it really is time to move away from the criminalisation of drug use into the medical uh, medical approach. The war on drugs really did work. Worked a treat, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> great. That's a discussion we could have another day. I'm going to finish by giving some of your last word from 0874100102. And Lundis Lund says, Lad, stop in bloody snowflakes. It's an effing song. Are you going to ban Johnny Cash from singing about shooting a man just to watch him die? It didn't effing happen. It's a bloody song. Well, Johnny Cash is dead. But anyway, we leave that aside. Uh, then we have another one, though, saying, Come on, lads. She stood there laughing. I felt the knife in my hand and she laughed no more. It's a song about murder, says Mick in Cork. And those are actually the lyrics. He regrets it afterwards, but what good are his regrets? And uh, another one says, wait till I hear about the lyrics of the French national anthem. A lot of bloodletting of the foreign invaders. It's a bit of war stuff in our one as well. Anyway, and uh, we'll take one final one here. Listening to the three of you talking about the refugees and the protests, all you can do is label people as far right. You don't want anyone else to have opinions other than your own. And if they don't agree, you label them. Can you see you don't want people on social media saying anything apart from what you, the mainstream media, want? And next you'll be calling for their free speech to be taken away. Listener, on a number of occasions during our piece, we made it exceptionally clear that we were not labelling anyone or everyone who takes part in these protests as being far right. What we pointed out to were the elements who are most definitely far right and racist and xenophobic, who deliberately spread lies and rumours to try and stir up sentiments in people who might have other issues that are upsetting them. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.